Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer, and today we're going to have another fantastic and incredible episode for you guys. So hopefully you enjoy. Uh, some people who maybe take the new Greer Head Pledge, not the old Greer Head Pledge, may have watched the Super Bowl last night and you can't believe it, but the Deep State rigged it. Uh, it's, it's incredible what the Deep State is up to. Uh, with the game, with the Chiefs somehow winning. They even tried to get Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift's boyfriend, to score the winning touchdown. There was a few times where he almost nearly did so, uh, but he did not score the game-winning touchdown. Almost, almost, you know, the what I played, you know, I should have placed a bet, you know, that uh, Kelsey will score a game-winning touchdown, Taylor Swift will calm down, and then they will say, the deep state has ordered us to tell everyone to vote for Biden, and... That would have been the game. No, I'm not. And there is a little bit of, uh, I'm always, it's one of the few conspiracy theories I will believe in that they did try to help the Chiefs win uh, to get to the Super Bowl because it's he massive, massive for the ratings to have Travis, I mean, to have, well, Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift's boyfriend, his team to win the Super Bowl because there's so much attention to the game now. You know, there was nearly, I think there was, um, you know, it was a pretty high percentage of people who are now watching NFL just because Taylor Swift's there, uh, mainly women, of course. Uh, so there is, you know, they want to reward the audience. You know, they're not going to have the Chiefs be knocked out in the wild card round and then, you know, ensure that they, uh, you know, that's not going to mean that they have money ratings. I would imagine that it's probably the highest ratings. But there were old, old believers in the Greerhead Pledge. You know, this is like the Orthodox Church between the old believers and new believers. Uh, with that, you know, there were some changes in the Orthodox Church um, at some point. I think it was like the 16th century. I'm not that great with Orthodox history. But then there was this group that were like the old believers who were like stuck in the old ways. And then the uh, the Orthodox Church came down hard on them. That's like the Greerhead uh, believers, you know, the old Greerhead pledgers who... Or insist that they're not watching the NFL, even though the Pope, which uh, in this in the Greerhead religion is would be me. You know, they define they're defying the Pope and, and going with the old one. Maybe I've been replaced by the deep state of some sort to get them to watch the NFL. But now it's uh, out of the Super Bowl. You know, I, this is just some initial thoughts. We're going to get into our main topic about Biden and him running because it involves that is. You know, compared to like most of the commercials, I think the foot washing ad with the uh, the Christian foot washing ad was probably the only really egregious one. Some of the stuff you're just so used to, it's like, oh, mixed race family, gay couple. You kind of just, these are things such so, you know, prevalent in advertising that you don't quite realize it anymore. There was a f ad where there was a white dad with his mixed race daughter and they finally bond over the NFL due to... Um, her getting into um, Taylor Swift, they're like seeing that Taylor Swift's now watching the NFL, and so they're both watching the game together. And before she's like, I, I, I hate you, dad, I have no respect for you. And the fat white dad's like, Come on, daughter. And the funny thing is, it's based on a real story that they, it, they apparently get, they stole it from a TikToker where it's a white guy with his black stepdaughter, not mixed race, and they're doing like things together and bonding over football. And uh, they stole the storyline from that, which shows that, like, maybe the advertising, you know, people saying, like, oh, you know, maybe there's too many interracial couples, which is true. It's, like, way higher than the actual population. But, you know, real life is starting to reflect advertising to an extent, unfortunately so. 
Um, so that's like one of the things. But the game itself, uh, there's also other things that is like that are so just like part of the game that you don't notice. Like I mean, in racism is still in the end zone. It's like what the hell is that doing there? Uh, they're still playing the Black National Anthem, which people have not really adopted to the Black National Anthem. Anytime they play it, it's the most awkward setting in the stadium. Like, the people are looking around. All the whites are just like, what am I supposed to do? Am I putting my hand over my heart? What am I? I definitely have to stand up for this. I can't kneel. And it is, I guess it's a little bit of a white pill that, you know, we haven't really taken to this stuff. It's a lot of this stuff, especially compared to other sports. You know, even the NBA doesn't do this stuff anymore. It really feels like a holdover from 2020 and 2021 that all this shit is there. And they haven't removed it yet. You know, it's like taking a time machine to 2020. Um, I wonder if they'll get... They're not going to get rid of the Black National Anthem. But I wonder if they will finally get rid of the um, end racism stuff in the end zone. Because it does just seem like old news that it, it is weird. But it is like an affirmation of faith in, in America. You know, this is a real part of the American faith now and the American dogma that we must end racism. It's the worst thing in the world. You know, it's kind of like if you lived in say like a Soviet union or something and they had like their sports teams and, you know, they would have something like down with the imperialism in the, um, somewhere in the soccer stadium (laughs) or the football stadium or the hockey ring, you know, they would have something like that. And it was just an affirmation of their belief in you know, communism in a totalitarian state. And we sort of have that in America with the BLM stuff. And it's it's really been built in. And sometimes we just don't notice anymore. And it's now like that with the NFL because, you know, we have, I mean, most people work normal jobs. Um, believe it or not, we have don't have DEI training at highly respected industries. But uh, I imagine at other jobs, you know, they have this DEI stuff, you know, this training, you know, there's... You know, they now have to go and have a PowerPoint special on George Floyd and our games have these anti-racist messages and stuff. And it's a real affirmation of, you know, the ideological superstructure of America with this stuff. And I think for a lot of people, I guess the one, you know, you know, the black pill is that this stuff is also apparent that we don't really notice it. But the white pill in that is that we really haven't taken to it or at least most people haven't. Uh, it's not so much like a silent majority that like rejects it. You know, it's something different from like the late 60s where, you know, if they saw this stuff, people got really violently mad. And, you know, that's also why they you know were fighting, you know, beating the crap out of hippies and stuff. And then voting for uh, Richard Nixon and George Wallace and backing police brutality against protesters and other things. You know, there was a real silent majority that they would get really offended with this. Here, it's more of an apathetic majority. I've sometimes called it a complacent majority, with, but with here, it's just like, you know, the awkward. <laughs> They're just looking around. They're not really into the Black National Anthem. It hasn't really been adopted by the American people, but it's just like a shrug of the shoulders and... I, that is better than them like proudly all like these white people really getting into lift every voice and sing, which is the Black National Anthem. Most people don't even know it. So that's another uh, positive moment. So those are just some initial thoughts on the Super Bowl. Now we're going to get to the tie-in with Biden. As Biden decided to play into the con, uh, con- the theories that conservatives were promoting that the deep state was... Uh, uh, Taylor Swift's a deep state agent, and you know this is all rigged in favor to help Biden. And 
Biden had a dark Brandon meme of like, just as we planned uh, with the game, like implying that they rig it, trying to joke that it was, you know, they really are trying to lean into it. But it is like funny because with the Biden stuff, uh, because just last week he was ruled too mentally incompetent to stand trial. So we'll get into that. But the la- the one last thing I want to say that's like direct to the Super Bowl, it probably is not good for the right to fully go into this anti-Swift, uh, anti-NFL mode. Now, it's like already going to sound like a cuck, but I think it for political purposes, like pragmatic political purposes, like I think there's lots of legitimate criticism. I made lots of legitimate criticism of the NFL. I think with the dissident right, you know, I think there's much more of an argument you can make for not watching the NFL. But then the entire, and I, when we were, when the mainstream right and dissident right were refusing to watch the NFL in the late 2010s over the, the anthem protest, it was sending, you know, a hard message to the NFL to stop allowing this stuff. And we're not going to appreciate this stuff. And the ratings fell. And then the NFL you know, tried to pressure players to not kneel for the anthem. And so it had an effect, but, you know, the NFL got woker after George Floyd and then conservatives have returned. And you haven't really seen the boycott effect now, even though a lot of conservatives are up in arms over Taylor Swift. And even NFL fans are really upset about Taylor Swift. People aren't turning off the game. Like, people are watching the game. People are tuning in. They're still buying merchandise. They're just maybe grumbling about it a little bit more. Um, at, difference from 2017 when they were actually turning off the game and the ratings you know took a significant dive uh but now you know and it's something with like americans there is a point where liberals love this point this argument that they can claim that like the right are weirdos and they think that they can have a good point with like the taylor swift stuff and everyone being anti-NFL. And the New York Times had an article with this horrible woman, Jane Coaston, who is, at one point in time, she was trying to be the ombudsman. Uh, an ombudsman is like a newspa- at a newspaper where they're like maintaining the standards and seeing what's too partisan or not. And they're like, you know, they're the watchman of the newspaper. And the ombudsman, she tried to appoint herself as the ombudsman of the right is like, oh, that's too racist. Yeah, oh, that's too racist. She makes believes that she's like some uh, southerner and stuff. I think she's like from the north. She's mixed race. And she still tries to do this, but I don't, there's like fewer far right wing figures that interact with her. In like 2018, 2019, you know, Ben Shapiro and a ton of major figures would be like, oh, Jane Coaston, we love you. Oh, okay, we'll try to do better. We won't try to be racist or hateful. And she would just like act to correct the mainstream right. And they were allowing her to have this position. She no longer has this, but she did have this interview with Charles C. Cook, who, see, I think it's Charles C. W. Cook. He added even another initial who's one of the editors at National Review over how weird the right is for being anti-NFL and anti-Taylor Swift. And they're both lamenting as like, these people are just political extremists. They want everyone to be miserable and be focused on politics. And they're like, y'all, they're so weird. And this woman's like a mixed race, uh, fat, a lesbian, and uh, not at all normal. I mean, if people saw her on the street, she has a goofy haircut not a normal person but they left a lot of people want to insist that they're the normal people both 
all political sides. No matter how weird you are, everyone insists that they're the weird, that they're the real normal people. So even like some transgender Antifa DSA member will insist they're the normal one and the right wingers are the weirdos and etc. And mainstream right conservatives will insist that. Everybody, uh, the main one that weird thing about politics is like everyone's trying to recreate high school with like, oh, I'm the normal, I'm the cool one. And maybe that's not how it is in real life. But she's able to to do this and they were like saying that how weird it is and cetera. and i mean they were exaggerating the effect and they're also it's also something that they were this any legitimate criticisms you make of the nfl for being engaged in it they also dismiss the bread and circuses like how could someone say this like say that in real life and they would beat your ass and they're both saying this and neither one of them is like a normal I mean, charles cook is um British expat who lives here. So, you know, they're not trying, they're not really quite middle Americans. They're trying to assimilate into middle America, but they were making this point about it being too weird and whatever, uh, with this. And, and she even had these like idiotic takes. She was quote tweeting about how people like, this is unironically my patriotism. And it's talking about how like some, some guy was talking about how he loves listening to Philly sports radio and somebody with a thick West African accent is complaining about the Eagles. And this is apparently what American nationhood is. And it got thousands and thousands of likes and stuff. It's grim stuff out there for the sports. Like when you actually interact with people with sports bios, with sports teams in their bios, usually the most are most loyal foot soldiers of the regime and believe all the stuff. They're like, more, more Luther King's a hero. Like, racism is the worst thing. We need more diversity. Diversity is our strength. And you'll generally, if you see any person with these, like, most NPC political takes that are just, like, reaffirming the dogmas of the regime, you can rest assured they probably have, like, an Eagles or Bucks or some other team in their bio. It's very, it's very unfortunate, and a lot of our side wants to, um, and also in part, part with the far right and dissident rights pursuit of trying to claim that they're the real normal people, and they were all varsity athletes in high school. They want to say like, actually, all sports fans are right wing, and uh, interacting with them on Twitter. I don't know if they're they're not really like leftists and antifa. They're just NPCs, and NPCs in America, you know, the great normies generally have a lot of liberal views now and are very uh they're not very uh red-pilled so to speak uh, which i think defeats some of the uh distant rights things but that's another point of the story the main thing i wanted to get that was a long-winded thing on the new york times is that i i think and among ourselves there's a lot of legitimate criticisms and there's like we can the bread and circuses stuff i think it's fine but it comes a bit weird when it goes to the level of benny johnson and them because that is what has an effect on our on our political leaders our actual politicians and is what is the message that is being spread from the mainstream right and if the liberals and our normies or whatever want to see what conservatism is saying and we're now saying the NFL's bread and circuses because a white pop star is dating a white NFL star, and this is all a plot to uh, a Pentagon plot to elect Biden. That does come off as very weird to people, and it does. It does, and you know Taylor Swift is very popular in America generally, and I've always said this in multiple articles, even on an article last week about Taylor Swift Republicans versus our Taylor Swift Democrats versus cat turd Republicans. 
is that she comes across as wholesome and inoffensive. And generally the people who really, really hate Taylor Swift in America who are not on Twitter, generally it's it's like a non-white left-wing thing to hate her because they hate that she's so white-coded and so conservative-coded, even though she her politics are liberal. A lot of liberals will go to the concerts and see that traditional gender norms are there. There's not a lot of trans people there's not you know people are not dressed weird it's generally people dressed normal and it's extremely white and that's really off-putting to the left so outside of twitter it's generally mostly and even on twitter there's a lot of people who hate taylor swift because of those reasons that she's too white too uh, nice looking and other things and now the right is like we're upset about this we don't want this we want more forgiato blow and these uh maga rappers with face tattoos and we want cat turd instead which is a um very different type of culture i don't think it's a very um the type of culture we want but they are trying to juxtapose that so it does create a weird off-putting message to people we're trying to reach in politics uh with this stuff And as we're trying to reach middle class, white, fairly normal people and us being extremely anti NFL, not for like even the real reasons, but just because uh, Taylor Swift and being anti Taylor Swift because of like Biden, not probably not the smartest political move. I feel like we can make criticisms of her like in our in our little sphere. But once it becomes a de facto dogma on the right and you know, reaches the level where our political leaders are tweeting about it and posting on Facebook about it. It becomes a, a little bit of a of an issue because we are trying this is like the middle class whites are the demographic that we're losing badly and they are determining elections and adopting this cat turd Republican versus Taylor Swift Democrat model is not the smart way to go. It's it sucks that Taylor Swift is liberal. We're fine to criticize her, but going a little over top and imagining she's the Antichrist, uh, unironically believing it. Ironic jokes like uh, Nick Adams is doing are fine, but the unironic stuff, which a lot of people are getting into, is a little bit much. And so that leads to issues with politics. And now we will go to Biden running for president because a lot of people are now you know re- reiterating that, that he's going to drop out that they're going to replace him with michelle obama or kamala and uh once i always say this point they are stuck with him i thought it went when he came out at night uh when his um uh, you know, his, the court report or the uh, the special counsel's report came out on his documents case. And for those who don't know, I mean, just a brief is that the, he they found that he had a bunch of classified documents that he was supposed to have, but <clears throat> his memory was so bad. Uh, he could have been lying, of course, but it, the he, you know, couldn't remember when his son died, couldn't remember you know, when he was vice president, you know, very serious lapses in memory. Which his, you know, advocates and shills are just saying that, oh, um, he was so focused on what had happened to Israel because this happened a day after the October 7th attack. So he was just, his mind was somewhere else. And it's like, how can you not remember when your son died and when you were vice president? You know, you're a president of the United States. You're at least supposed to remember this stuff. So it showed like serious cognitive disability. And, uh, you know, and the special counsel ruled that, hey, well... 
you know, we can't really charge him because, you know, they did make some points like, oh, well, you know, maybe it's not really criminal how he stored and maybe his excuse for fine. But the main point, they said we couldn't convict him in front of a jury because they would see a former president, a kindly old former president who suffers from very poor memory. And, you know, he's he's too unfit to stand trial. And that's why they didn't they didn't uh, try the uh, Biden. And it's very bad extremely bad for your sitting president who's running again to be ruled mentally unfit to stand trial which is what that report said there's no there's no other mincing it that's what the report said and even the mainstream media is starting to admit that yeah this is really bad like nbc news very liberal place you know it's not there's no ever ever evidence that it's conservative ran about how devastating this is for the biden campaign that they just rule him mentally unfit to stand trial but he is still, even with that news, they're still going to run him because they don't have anyone else. First off, they have to change all these rules with the primary. It's very difficult to do this stuff at a convention now. And they'd have to convince Biden to drop out. Biden, as I've always made this point, him and his wife are assholes. They are not going to drop out. They are arrogant. The, the point you can always make from this is how they violently well i don't know finally but aggressively resisted ever getting rid of their dogs that kept attacking secret service and the staff and they were terrifying secret service like secret service would would change their whole plan in the white house to avoid the dogs because the dogs kept attacking them and they didn't give a shit they kept the dogs the only time that they finally got rid of the dogs is that there were so many news reports about how they're attacking everyone and how it's a danger to the white house and they realized that it got an embarrassment but that's such a small matter for them. A major matter is for them to stay in the White House. And Joe Biden wants to stay there. Joe wants to stay there. What is going to convince them to drop out? Nothing. They think that Joe Biden is more electable than his vice president. Probably true. A senile Joe is more electable than Kamala. Kamala, the, the Democratic establishment doesn't like Kamala. They all see her as terrible, like anti-charisma, uh, every time she goes out in public, she makes a fool of herself. No one's going to vote for her. And they can't blame this on mental uh, cognition problems. It just And she has like the lowest approval rating of any vice president in American history. So that's not somebody. They can't just like pick someone from one of these governors or senators. You know, they can't just like pick, you know, do some Mark Gretchen Whitmer because then that would piss off other people. Like, why am I not getting this? And if they did have to go to a convention and they didn't have anyone, I mean, Dean Phillips is the only person still running against him. Dean Phillips has like no, I don't think he has any delegates. I mean, he might have won like some from uh, New Hampshire, maybe one. I don't know. I don't think he did. But the, they don't want Dean Phillips. And so they would have to go to a convention and have a vote there. And this is only if Biden cooperates in dropping out, which probably won't. Uh, I've always I've always made these points is that Woodrow Wilson had a stroke in 1919. And he didn't even run the country for the last year and a half for like for several for several months. His wife and his secretary ran the country. He was too incapacitated to do this. And even once he recovered enough to be able to talk and attend to meetings, still not in strong shape. But even after the stroke, which he could barely walk around, not his brain function, his ability to speak were severely diminished, he still wanted to run for president. 
And he put his name out to run for a third term. And Democrats, the only reason he wasn't nominated is because Democrats are like, um, we don't think he can run. And he kept his name in there. There's even an example from the 1824 where uh, William Crawford had a stroke before the election. And, you know, this time, you know, it was before mass media. So they weren't like taking, you know, no cameras back then. And some people were wondering, it's like, uh, is his health good enough? And then people met him like, oh, God, he's, he's like completely incapacitated. He can't be president. But people still voted for him. He still stayed in the election <laughs> and he still took votes, uh, despite the fact that he was like clearly uh, in no physical health to do this. And then and he was one of the many people who ran in 1824. A lot of people ran. We're not, that's for another topic on that discussion. And then. Roosevelt in 1944 was on death's door the whole year. He nearly died at the beginning of the year for heart problems and numerous health issues. He was a dying man. He still ran for president despite being a dying man because he felt like there's no one else in the Democratic Party who can do this and I'll just run. And they all realized like he had little time left in his life. You know, he, he gave the shortest inauguration speech and everyone who was there seeing his inauguration because they had hit a lot of him at a lot of times, you know, that prevented a lot of the media from seeing him and seeing him up close. And they saw him in inauguration is like, dear, they all thought he was like a cadaver at this point. So this shows that in the past, like when people had serious health issues, you know, they still ran for president. And Biden, unless he has a stroke, I do think if he does have something like Woodrow Wilson or FDR, which it makes them look like they're dying, and the fact is we have mass media at this point cameras are going to capture it if he's like there being rolled out in a wheelchair and he's like you know talking at the side of his mouth he probably would have to drop out uh, i i don't think you know if he didn't drop out it, trump they would nominate trump because it'd be so bad to elect a little cadaver that would be the only point but as long as he just stays reasonably physically he can walk around and talk it doesn't matter if he's making massive mistakes in, you know, calling the president of Egypt, the Mexican president, Sisi. It doesn't matter if he's calling, uh, thinking of Angela Merkel as uh, German Chancellor Helmut Kohl, uh, which I don't know how you mix that up. Who He's also dead. Uh, Macron as Mitterrand, which I guess there is one, like, a justification for that because Macron, Mitterrand, you know, if you're an old man, you maybe mix, mix up the names. He could have thought that it was Macron. You could say, oh, well, he just mixed up the names, even though Mitterrand's been dead for nearly 30 years. Uh, Helmut Kohl and, and uh, Angela Merkel are two different genders and look very much alike and have no similar name whatsoever. And they did belong to the same party, but uh, there's no similarities <laughs> between that two. And that's really bad that he would say this and we're just going to witness this more but he's still more electable than Kamala they don't want a a a chaotic convention where you know they just have to figure this out i don't think the party bosses just can pick someone they'd have to have like a floor delegation i don't know the it would be totally it'd be a very weird scenario where they'd have to return to the old type of primaries uh pre-70s where just what this stuff was determined in a convention and they it's that that would rub people the wrong way because they're like well we picked biden and the only way that that can occur if biden drops out but it, it would really have to be a health 
a serious health problem, like a, like a stroke that prevented him from walking around and really actually talking. It does, as long as he talks and he mixes up shit and remember, thinks he's been talking to dead people, doesn't matter. They're still going to run him. He's still more electable than Kamala. And he himself and his wife will never want to drop out unless they... There has to be something. Even they're not. Even the Hunter Biden threats are not enough to make them drop out. So, and I don't think Jill Biden cares about Hunter Biden, <laughs> but Joe might. But Joe is such an asshole; he probably doesn't give a shit. So that's like something we they Democrats are stuck with Joe. They cannot replace him with Michelle Obama. Michelle Obama is like the most ridiculous thing that I know the betting markets are placing bets on Michelle Obama. Michelle Obama is not going to run for president. She doesn't like politics. She doesn't like electoral politics. She hated being on the, she only liked being on the campaign trail when people were not criticizing her and they were just cheering for her. She really hates criticism. She does not like the, you know, bread and butter politics of just shaking hands and meeting with people and having to make, negotiations with others she really hated that in the white house when you know brock would have to you know make compromises and negotiate with people that he she that he hated michelle obama's just like fuck you i'm not doing that uh i don't want to do that and she really got mad about any media criticism of her or criticism from other politicians it really drives her it gets under her skin she only wants like a politics where everyone agrees with her. She doesn't have to make any compromises or deals with people. And she doesn't have to deal with anyone she doesn't like, which that's impossible in politics. So she really doesn't enjoy it. She has a lot of popularity, but she's never going to do this. She doesn't like politics and it's just a theory. And the, all the people who say Michelle Obama are not coming from liberal politics. It's all from right-wing commentary. The only people who are saying this stuff are right-wing commentary. It's all conservative commentary. They, which, as I've pointed out, conservative commentators don't get anything right in politics. They don't know any, they don't know shit. They all thought that DeSantis would win this primary block. They all thought that Trump would never win a single primary. They all thought, even in 2016, they thought that, oh, they're going to replace Hillary with Biden. Biden's going to run. And any time that they made this point, I was like, Hillary would beat Biden in that primary. That's why he's not going to run. She has all the donors that he would have. She has all the advisors and everybody, all that establishment. Democrats are lined up behind her. And Biden doesn't have that. And that's why he didn't run. But conservatives were running. And because it's like an entertaining theory. Like, it's very boring just to think that, like, Biden is going to be the nominee and just sail on. It was, it, And for some of them, they were also bored by the fact that, you know, Trump's going to be there. They don't want to rematch. They want something exciting and, you know, something different in this primary uh, you know, some plot twist that could happen to make this more interesting. And this it's more wish casting than actual sober analysis of what could happen. And that's just not going to happen with Biden. Biden is definitely not going to be replaced by Michelle Obama. If it happened at the convention, it'd probably be your standard leaders. I don't know what they would do at a convention. My guess, if like it was like a health, serious health problem, this could happen. Like I, I don't, he is 81. He is looking horrible. There is a, you know, they're putting on God knows what drugs to get him to do speeches. There is a good likelihood that he has a serious health problem emerge between now and the convention. And so I don't want to say that he is there permanently stuck with him because I do, I do feel that there is a good chance for a health problem uh, with his current condition. 
but it has to be before the convention. If it does happen before the convention, there is a chance that, you know, they roll him out and they realize like, okay, you know, you're done. But it would have to be him admitting to saying, I'm not running for president anymore. I think Jill, if she saw that he was at death's door, would probably finally relent and they would drop out. And they'd have to pick someone at the, at the convention. I think if they had to pick anyone at the convention, it would just be Kamala. Because they, it'd be like, she's the vice president, running mate, whatever. That's who we're running. That's who we're picking. They line up. They don't want to have a tense, like, you know, brutal brawl at the convention just a few months before the election. They just line up behind Kamala. And the switcheroo would... I mean, well, there's also Trump's conviction that it happened. But if Trump's not convicted and he's running against Kamala, I think it increases his chances of winning. Uh, <clears throat> I think he, he much uh, unconvicted and non-convicted Trump against Kamala is actually even better odds for Trump against Biden. I still think he would win against Biden if he doesn't get convicted. But against Kamala, uh, I would I would be even more certain that he would win. Uh, so that would probably even be better for us. Uh, but that's like, uh, I, I think it's a lot of the, at this time, I mean, this is my main point. They're stuck with him. And that's, um, I think Democrats realize there are a lot of issues with that. But the other alternative, the most likely alternative is probably worse and less electable, which is Kamala. And maybe Newsom or Whit, I don't know if Whitmer would be better, but maybe, probably Newsom would be better than Biden. Uh, just because he can, you know, talk <laughs> and remember who the French president is uh, and not mix up Egypt with Mex Mexico. But, you know, it's uh, he's got a lot of issues going in the presidency, but it's like good for us that they're stuck. I, I think a lot of speculation is just, uh, you know, remarkable wish casting. But, you know, in conclusion, I've, I've been repeating myself a little bit, um, but... Yeah, as long as he stays relatively healthy, you know, no stroke, no heart attack, no, you know, aneurysm or anything that puts him out of commission, he's going to be the presidential candidate. So even the same with like Trump, like even some of these DeSantoids and, and like Nikki Haley's campaign is based on that. They're like, well, Trump's legal problems will maybe force him out. Uh, I am, well, I was even more certain, even last, I said this last year, I'm even more certain that Trump's going to be the nominee. And Trump is the nominee. And legal problems won't force him out. <laughs> Trump will never also relent in dropping out of the presidential, uh, the race. And that's going to be, what the hell are they going to do at the convention, you know, when he controls all the delegates? You know, they can't remove him, even if he is convicted. So he's going to stay in the race no matter what. So he's the nominee. And so will it will be a rematch. And I think that's like a good scenario for us. I think it's probably better. It, you know, I, I'm a little bit skeptical of, um, or not skeptical, but I think it would be tougher. It'd be a tougher race if he went against uh, someone who is not Biden or Kamala on the Democratic side. And so it's better that, you know, he runs against Biden, but it's not, it doesn't make the news exciting. It's more exciting to believe that, you know, Biden is going to, you know, take himself out of commission and then they'll have like somebody else that'll be add a new element to this, you know, a new exciting element. You know, it's like going to see a movie and seeing all the same characters, like a sequel. It's like exactly like the first movie. I wanted something different or, you know, people want variety and difference in the stuff. And when they have it with presidential elections, 
you know, they're bored by it. So they do want, they don't, people don't want a rematch. They want something new pizzazz with this. They want a plot twist with the election, but they're not going to get it. And that was just affirmed by like Biden's angry tirade uh, following the special counsel's report. So that is it for all the subjects, uh, the regular subjects. I, I'm going to have a little bit of a longer talk on Putin's interview because our first question is about Putin's interview. So I'm just going to go off on that question and give my thoughts on it. Uh, the Putin Tucker interview. So as a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics. If you sign up for con- the convalete option at highly respected Substack, and that's highly dash respected.com and make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. So this question comes from K Max. We always love K Max's questions. He got he comes out on the on the Tucker Carlson interviews. He said some of the dissident right were disappointed with the Tucker Carlson Vladimir Putin interview. What was your view and what should we, what should have been expected? Do they feel Putin should be the answer to solving the West problems with immigration, anti-white hate, and sexual degeneracy? Is it too much pressure on Putin? So I think that the, the interview was fine. I think the more important point is that Tucker Carlson interviews Putin, which is a major news event. It keeps Tucker in the news. It makes him you know, look like he's a serious person because he's interviewing world leaders. And you know he's not just some guy on the Internet because most people, just some guy on the Internet can't get an interview with a Russian president. And very few people get this. But I think it's more that Putin didn't quite understand the point of the interview or what should have been the goal. As said, like everyone joked, like the first 30 minutes, and I wrote a column about this, the first 30 minutes is him getting a massive history lesson about Russia and Ukraine's relationship, which some people on our side appreciated. They're like, this is very intelligent and well thought out. And it's, you know, it is remarkable that a world leader would give such a such a uh, answer and have such a insightful dialogue or monologue on sub- a subject we can't expect our president to do that you know our president uh, his history would just i remember in his his year or two first year or two he would give every world leader the same anecdote about satchel page who is this uh, black baseball player which i most most of these world leaders are like who the hell is satchel page you know they didn't know who this is and so it's remarkable that putin would have this much knowledge to just you know deliver in a 30 minute monologue but it's like who are you communicating to and some people are, made these cope answers like he's communicating to the intellectual elite that watches tucker carlson and those are the people turning in and it's like the intellectual elite is not watching Tucker Carlson. Are the people he he doesn't really are the people who would understand that monologue? He doesn't really need to win over because they're like some people are like he's speaking to us the distant right. It's like Putin doesn't need to do much to win over the distant right, and it's also what benefit is him to win over the distant right? They, we don't have much control over American politics as is. <laughs> you know, we have a little bit of influence, but not a lot, and. He already has them, uh, most of our side, pretty sympathetic to him. And most people have already heard these speeches before because he's given the long history rant about uh, Ukraine and Russia before in many speeches and in, and in essays he's written. This is already there. Uh, he doesn't need to reiterate this point. Uh, so that's like one issue. And it, it didn't communicate, you know, when they're like, why did you go to war with Ukraine? He could have given a much simpler answer that was based on direct history right now. He could have given a brief saying, you know, we've had a long history together. Much of 
what you is Ukraine used to be Russia. Uh, you could have given a very much more simpler answer, not going into the Middle Ages, Middle e uh, the medieval times of Russian history. And I just said, you know, it's about our security. You know, we made a deal that saying that they would never join NATO and all these things that could have been said about, you know, the importance of Ukraine to Russia. And I think a lot of people would say, oh, well, that's something I haven't heard before. That's something that we don't hear about in our media. But he went along with this, uh, the history monologue uh, a direction to which most people would just tune out. I think also another problem is Putin was too eager to own Tucker uh, with a lot of stuff. One was like it's like an alpha move to first off do a 30 minute monologue that Tucker didn't want to hear. It was like him trying to own and dominate Tucker. He also made Tucker wait for two hours before allegedly before coming to the interview. But he does that to everybody. He does that to world leaders. The only person he doesn't do that to is Xi because Xi has the, you know, he, he makes sure he's going to be... Um, loyal to G. Also, I think Erdogan made him wait awkwardly one time uh, for a meeting, probably because Putin is notorious for it. And they had all the cameras there. And I think I'm pretty sure it was Erdogan. And, you know, Putin's kind of just standing there awkwardly as the cameras are there. And Erdogan then shows up a bit later. Uh, it's a way, you know, it's a very, I don't know if American leaders do that too much, but it's a very common thing among a lot of the other world leaders is to do that. Putin is notorious, and he, I think Merkel had problems with dogs, and he would make sure to bring a dog to their meetings uh, to make her uncomfortable. So he's a little bit too eager for this. And it's like, you know, Tucker's a relatively sympathetic journalist. You're not trying to, you know, own him, this guy, which kind of undermines your ability to reach uh, the audience you want is if you're just, like, owning your interviewer. And then he... Uh, you know, said like, thankfully, uh, you didn't join the CIA, but we know the CIA is a serious organization. That's like a really like cutting remark <laughs> uh, to Tucker. Uh, the other incidents uh, which he did is uh, it's not uh, Putin's fault because you know they're talking about Christianity and stuff, and then he's like, "Do you believe?" And Tucker's like, "Do you believe the supernatural is at work in the world?" And Putin was like, "What?" And he's like, "Uh, no." <laughs> <laughs> which most like American leaders are like, yes, the, the UFOs are demons and all this stuff, which if he was interviewing like some of the average Republican lawmakers, they would say yes. Uh, but Putin's like, this is wild. No, people, people aren't going to take me seriously if I think that demons are floating around and, and, outer, and coming to us as U and UFOs and all this other stuff. So he uh, knows he has to seem like a reasonable statesman and that's not what a reasonable statesman would say. So that was a funny part, but um, I, I just don't think Putin really approached it in the way that he should. I, it was going to reach a ton of people. It was, I mean, because it's on Twitter, you know, it did reach a lot of people. And some people are always arguing that it definitely reached the intellectual elite. But nobody's going to tune in for the 30-minute rant. I think most people just saw clips from it. And I think for our audience, they would have enjoyed some of it. Um but it is what it is. I think it was a missed opportunity for Putin. I think he should have. But I think Putin, you know, he, he, he's like an unquestionable leader in Russia. He feels like, you know, I'm going to do something my way. I don't really care about tailoring it to other people. And it's his one chance with Western media. And I think he's just really fed up with Western media and how they've covered the war that he just decided to 
unleash it on Tucker and t- trying to own him and like, you know, alpha, alpha dog mode, mode with Tucker, which is probably not the right approach. So it's still an interesting interview. I think it was still good for Tucker in that regards, but I don't think it was the best interview that Putin should have given. And to the last question, uh, do you feel that the Putin should be the answer to solving the West problems? Uh, no, he's not really the answers to the problems. One, he's very limited in what amount of control he can have over the West. I mean, some people have criticized my takes on how the Ukraine war has gone. The real loser in this war, no matter what happens, is Ukraine. Ukraine has had their population depleted. Half their country is ruined. At least half their country is ruined from the war. Uh, They've, I mean, they've lost like, you know, just like throughout migration, they've lost nearly 20% of their population if not more. And then they've lost like a huge chunk of their fighting age, young male population in this war. And what is going to be the result of it is like a ruined nation with hardly any people and a fertility rate in the, in the toilet. So they're there. It's, you know, they're like, we're protecting Ukraine, but at the end of the day, like Ukraine isn't really a country anymore. You know, it's just kind of this ruined wasteland with these corrupt oligarchs running it. And no, and all these people are gone. They've just left to the West. So what kind of victory is that? So they're definitely the big loser. And I think Russia can be a moderate winner. You know, if they get, they're going to get, like whatever peace deals happens, they're going to get a territory in Ukraine. Now, how much territory makes it seem like a victory? Now, if they get what they've aimed for what they're aiming for and what Putin's speeches have said, which is they get Odessa and Kharkov. That would be a, that would be a clear victory, but they're probably not going to get that. Uh, they'll probably just get the four oblasts that they've claimed to have annexed. Crimea is recognized as part of Russia. I mean, Crimea is already considered a part of Russia. It's a four additional oblasts um, uh, alongside Crimea, which happens, which, you know, something, it's not a defeat, but it's uh, very much less than what they expect. I mean, the war, the war initially, as they sent guys to Kiev, I mean, even though uh, several people who think that Putin, everything Putin has done is brilliant and on, on, and on schedule and on a plan, you know, they tried to knock out the government in Kiev and replace it with a, with a more sympathetic government to return Ukraine to the Russian sphere. That obviously didn't happen. And then they've just been trying to take as much territory as they can get. Um, which they have taken, uh, you know, significant amount of territory, but probably not as much as they would want, and they don't want to risk the type of casualties that would that would require to take them to take Kharkov and Odessa. I mean, they're I mean, unless there's like a massive just like breakdown and the Ukrainian forces like they just all flee and you know there's like nobody else to cover these casualties and you know the West cuts them off and then they just make a last push. To take a lot of these areas, um, you know, they're probably this is probably not going to get what they want out of out of Ukraine, so they're going to have to settle for less. But it's it's somewhat of a win <laughs> for them. But the big victor is the American Empire because it, it is this you know the globalist American Empire. It's they have blown up the Nord Stream pipeline, <laughs> cutting off their economic connections to Europe in multiple ways, both literally with a pipeline explosion 
and you know forcing all these european countries to place sanctions on russia and to cut off their economic ties which has like devastated the european economies they've made europe even more dependent on america uh, for security and for economic means they haven't really dealt the devastating economic blow to russia because russia did build up itself to resist the sanctions that would come but at the same time they've made russia even extremely dependent on china and forced them into the chinese sphere as a junior partner which even putin in the interview acknowledged that he's like a junior partner with china which is i don't know if that's not really what we want as western nationalists uh, because it's making him care give less of a shit of building a strong west but of just being anti-west because that's more china's goal Uh, some people may you know disagree but it's not like really what you want. I mean, what you would want is like having Russia have stronger ties with, with Europe and build a more keyed Europe in that model. But I think that the chances are for that are diminished after this war. And Russia and its allies, well, <laughs> just Belarus, are using immigration as a weapon against the West. You know, they are inviting all these Africans and Arabs to come to Russia, and then they send them across the border into Finland and into um, some of the Baltic states and into Poland. Uh, We really can't support that. That's not a good way. And also they're using, there's some reports that they're now repopulating a lot of Ukraine with Central Asians uh, as well. Which, I mean, you know, you can argue they need some they need somebody to repopulate those parts of eastern Ukraine because they all, you know, people died or fled. So there is like some regards to that. So looking to Putin as the savior of the West, uh, I think that's mistaken belief. I think we should have uh, cordial ties with him. I don't see him as an enemy or a villain. Uh, I think, you know, America and the West waging this war was very stupid I don't think it was really in our interest and really the result of it is just the destruction of Ukraine and the, you know, the deaths of hundreds of thousands of fighting age white men uh, and for in an area of the world where fertility rates are already horrible and now we ensure that there's all these men who are never going to reproduce ever again. I don't think that's like, I think that's a terrifying spectacle that's happened. I think it's a catastrophic effect. Uh, which is ensure that I don't think Ukraine is going to exist as much of a country after this war much longer uh, do the those effects. And I don't think it was, uh, I think it could have been even easily solved with negotiation. So as all, and I've always been a uh, supporter of, you know, America pushing Ukraine to make a deal and give up territory um, in that regards. But at, at the same time that I don't see Putin as a villain or a devil, I don't see him as our savior uh, of any sort. He has his own interests, and those interests he has are not exactly the interests of us. And I think that those interests have been, even after this war, have converged in separate directions because now he wants to punish Europe and he sees immigration as more of a weapon to be used against us rather than something that could be restricted. Now you could argue that our own leaders are also eager for immigration in a way, which is true, but so is Putin. So he's not really, um, he's not really a um, the guy to look forward to. And it's really up to us, like people of our leaders that we elect. We can't expect a foreign government or foreign leaders to really save our situation. It really have to be people coming from Europe and America who would reverse our situation. 
And maybe Putin, I think a a Russian-led European order that would have been better for us, but the chances of that happening now are much, much less than they were prior to the war. So that's my view on that. A little bit controversial with some people, but uh, that's my view and I'm sticking to it. So we'll move on to some more questions. We'll answer K Max other two questions he has. He has uh, one on this tweet, uh, which was a Ben Shapiro talking about inherent group differences, and so he um, K Max was saying, "I feel we have a breakthrough of Al Sharpton calling the border crisis an invasion, and Ben Shapiro mentioning innate genetic group differences. However, despite the these ideas, the distant right." being true they have no true institutional power can we not win the ideas war despite being right as long as eprom kendi and robin d'angelo get all the money how should we approach this with a slow and steady march to the institutions with these ideas sharpton and ben Shapiro, sharp ben Shapiro spouse well one thing about our sharpton i was i wouldn't uh, put too much weight on it the weird thing is that black communities are really mad about this because they feel that the migrants are taking money from them and they're not really turning into anti-immigration they're just demanding more money i think there was an example of this when vivek went last year to chicago to meet with the black community there about the migrant problem and they're like he's like you know trying to push like immigration restriction to them and they're like nah we just want reparations and we just want more money and so it's more of just a a battle of conflicting interests where blacks are like we deserve that money not these migrants and that's why he's saying it's invasion i went it is it is important to note that how all these figures are coming out against this like stephen a smith did a long rant about how much they're spending on migrants people are really pissed off about this because they know this is cutting into public services they are in favor of mass immigration in the abstract, but once once it becomes direct and affects black communities and starts taking money away from them, then they're just you know demanding a wall and and some more security. And Sharpton's also you know figure of the Democratic establishment. He's just like saying this invasion. In the time he was saying the invasion, he was also blaming Republicans for not passing the horrible border bill that just cemented the invasion. So I wouldn't say too much about it. Shapiro is an interesting point. A lot of conservatives have been into these ideas for a while because they all read Charles Murray. They've all had a lot of respect for Charles Murray. There's been a few people who have, you know, for various reasons, because, you know, racism, worried about getting called racist and other things. Uh, that would engage in this. I think Shapiro saying that stuff is uh, a very important move and that it creates the opening to more openly discuss this stuff and makes it more socially acceptable to say these things. And so I think that's a little bit of a bigger deal. And I think it's more of a ideological reason for saying this or a more moving the Overton window than Al Sharpton. The Al Sharpton calling innovation is just showing how much immigration is unpopular right now uh, for the whole population because all these cities are now experiencing illegal immigrate, mass illegal immigration at a really devastating effect. And that's what's causing all these figures to come out against immigration and saying these things that Sharpton did. Uh, so, but when on the institutional matter, you know, we're making these ideas known through a slow and steady march. 
And there's something with the institutional power and stuff, but whenever we, ch there's some problems with like starting an institution, you know, if you like want to have an old magazine and then it's like openly, you know, then they condemn it as racist and stuff and then they can consign it to, you know, the ghetto of some sort. There's always those issues, but we are getting our ideas more and more out there and people are interacting with these ideas more than ever before, ever in my lifetime. So we are having a positive effect on that. Uh, the real question is how much of these ideas are then filtering down to the general public and how much is this helping us win elections, which that will be remain to see in November. You know, so, you know, there were a lot of arguments about making institutions. There are some issues with making institutions that are explicitly in our favor of our views because it makes them easier to deplatform and shut down as what we're seeing with, uh, unfortunately, with VDARE right now, you know, that the New York AG is coming down hard on them just because of their immigration views. And, you know, she's wielding state power against them. You know, that's the type of stuff you have to deal with if you have an openly identitarian group, an institution when it's there is that you're open yourself up to those type of attacks. So in some ways, it's a little bit better to have a guerrilla type war where, you know, you have individuals um, not directly tied to an institution of uh, of traditional institution of sort who are just pushing these ideas through social media, through YouTube, through Twitter, through Substack. And due to the popularity of these ideas and that a lot of their, you know, people, you know, Shapiro's audience and stuff, they'll be like, why don't you address this issue? And why don't you address this thing? And then they eventually come around to it. And, you know, and you see what Matt Walsh is saying, you know, he's really saying a lot of stuff that only the alt-right was saying in 2016. Same with Charlie Kirk, same with, uh, with Tucker, same with Candace Owens. And so much more of the biggest conservative commentators now especially the ones that reach a younger audience are saying stuff that only the alt-right was saying and the distant right were saying many years ago. So that's a positive indication. So that would be my answer on that. We're making a lot of progress, slow and steady progress. And at this point, it's a little bit better to build up a, a type of guerrilla act, intellectual activism rather than having a traditional institution just because of the obstacles and difficulties we face in having a traditional institution. So here's the final question from KMAX. Uh, Scott with lectures by Dante King at University of San Francisco, where he says whites are psychopaths and discusses the delusion and perversion of whiteness. He also claims it's written in the law that you can rape black women. I don't think so. Do we have, do we have hope more will be turned over to our side or do many gener generation Z types eat this stuff? Eat this up with a spoon. My hope is that it's so over the top, many would be turned off and join our side. Your thoughts on this? Um, no, I don't think anyone's into this. I don't think people are into this stuff. Either. I, I saw the tweet. It, that's a. It's so over the top that it just pushes people into our direction if they hear this. If this is like what is the counterpoint to the right, then people will then be more interested in what the right has to say. So it's better that you have people like this saying this ridiculous stuff uh, than that. I, I, you know, a lot of my intellectual journey was hearing the crazy stuff in college and sociology classes where they're like, only only whites can be racist. And, uh, you know, black crime is just caused by their circumstances. And a lot of that stuff just made me, you know, more right wing hearing in college. And I think that's an effect on a lot of people. I think some people just shrug their shoulders and just like, whatever. 
they don't care. But that stuff that's it's so over the top, it's so vitriolic that it doesn't help their side. The real issue comes with the more moderate people who are just like whiteness is corrupt. You know, they're not saying whites are psychopaths or whites are evil, but they're just saying whiteness and white privilege are re- really explain a lot of the things in this country. It explains why there's such a high cr- crime rate among blacks because they don't have this all this privilege. I think what it's it's more of an issue when it's said in a moderate and appealing tone than when it's said in the way that Mr. King said it at the University of San Francisco. We want more people to say like Mr. King, the way that Mr. King says it. But when you have a more sober approach to it, that's when it becomes a problem. That's when people eat it up and they are more likely to embrace those stupid ideas. So that would be my answer to that. Now we've got to go to mystery. Mystery's got a few questions. Uh, Let's see. He said, a couple of questions. How much value do you place on term limits as a reform to keep new blood and ideas going in Congress? Uh, similar to the science theory that science progresses one death at a time. I actually think term limits are stupid. Uh, I, I think it's kind of a waste of time. I, we, people really don't like this as, as, as a knee-jerk populism as a way because we think that like, oh, people are in Congress too long. But in a lot of ways, you want long-term lawmakers to be there so they have more power to stop bad legislation and push good legislation. It really wouldn't solve anything by just taking old dinosaurs out. We think in, the, in our minds that, you know, okay, we wouldn't have McConnell and stuff, but it would create a more chaotic Congress where more people really could not get things, anything i mean congress really doesn't get anything done at this point but it'd be even more chaotic it'd be more people just like grandstanding the whole time and if they only have two terms they're not about to try to do anything uh to fix this it really wouldn't fix any of the problems with congress congress got more done uh under the old thing under the old system where it's um all right, I, I got to rephrase this. I, I would say, you know, when we didn't have quite term, there was no, you know, demand for term limits and stuff. And some of these congressmen didn't really get as much media attention. They were more willing to do stuff. Now, the problem is, is a lot of things they were doing were terrible. So the only re- reason you would want to support term limits is not that it would make Congress better, but it would make it even more chaotic and that it would get even less done. And a kind of accelerationist argument, which I, I don't know. You kind of you still want the semblance of a of a serious legislative body, but without term limits, you would it would totally diminish that. I think. But a lot of what people want from like we get rid of term limits, and now they actually do stuff. They'd actually do even less than that, and would, they'd be even less inclined to actually solve real problems with these uh, uh, with the with that being taken away. And so it really wouldn't solve our issues with term limits. So I'm not that uh, keen on it. I think it's just one of these easy populist moves where it's people want to, and Trump does it, but it, people are like, people spend too much time in D.C. They need to get a real job. And then they're like, oh, I like that my congressman is there so he can get more rewards from my district and other things. It, it would make it, we'd probably eliminate a lot of pork barrels <laughs> like for on all these district things, but that wouldn't probably make a lot of people happy in their districts who are like, hey, we thought we'd get a new bomb factory or something, and we're not getting that anymore. So I think some people would come to regret, regret that. 
Um, so yeah, I'm not in a conclusion, not that keen on it. Okay, so his other question, the border bill is horrible. After all these years of Trump, are its GOP supporters in Congress still simply addicted to cheap labor? Uh, is there any other motivation? I think it's it showed a lot of progress for Republicans, even though because the vast majority of Republicans rejected it. You know, they didn't even put it to a vote. They cut it off. Uh, there was the bad thing that they're like, well, they put all this, you know, massive foreign aid spending, which is still not good. But it, having just the foreign aid spending without the border security, which, you know, all these GOP senators promised there'd be border security, it's probably better than the border bill. And, they, and the GOP can't get their shit together to agree on some border security changes. I mean, it's, it's a leaderless caucus, especially within the House. So if you had to choose between the foreign aid bill and the terrible border bill, you would probably say, well, whatever, fine with the foreign aid. I, you would say, ideally, you would want neither. neither. But, and, and you're going to see a lot of you know, opposition in the House. Maybe in the House, they'll kill the foreign aid bill. Which may lead them to go back to doing a border secure, you know, the GOP insists on like one or two changes to the border that have no negative effects like the border bill had. You know, that would be a positive development, but... Um, I'm a little skeptical of that. Uh, but on the motivations, yes, a lot of these guys are addicted to cheap labor. You know, they have all these corporate donors, especially in the agricultural industry that want more foreign labor. All these businesses just want foreign labor and their donors are like this. And there is, so that's a huge motivation. And also the motivation is that a lot of these established Republicans still have this fantasy of working across the aisle with Democrats to really solve the problems of America, which is just stupid. That's just not going to happen anymore. And generally, when they did try to work across the aisle, there was terrible ideas from amnesty that they were trying to push in the 2000s and 2010s, the uh, Immigration Act of 1990, which greatly increased immigration, uh, war authorization that has allowed you know the president to invade Iraq and other things. Uh, civil rights bill of 1991 that expanded, you know, most of these bipartisan bills of the last 40, 40, really 60 years have been just terrible. So it's probably better that they can't work across the aisle, but all these guys really hyped up on this fantasy of, yes, I can't wait to do this. Um, I can't wait to sign up for this, um, which I don't, I, I think is bad. So, but it's a, still a good thing. I don't want to get that blackpilled about it. The fact that the GOP, you know, they introduced this bill and the entire GOP rejected it. And this bill is still an improvement over what the type of deal they would have tried to done five years ago where they would have tried to insert amnesty and stuff. It's still a terrible bill, but it's probably relatively less terrible than what they would have tried to do four, five years ago. I think it's all starting to, uh, you know, improve the party. And improve the push the party in our direction still. So I don't want to be too blackpilled about it. Um, and then he's like, please tell me Scott Tim Scott won't be VP. I don't think he'll be picked for VP. I would say he's a more realistic idea than Vivek and definitely Tucker, but he's not gonna be it. Because Tim Scott, Trump wants somebody who will ardently defend every decision he's done. He wants to somebody say 2020 was a rigged election. Tim Scott won't say that. Tim Scott won't defend Trump's actions on January 6th. Others will. At least Stefanik defended Trump's actions on January 6th. And as openly says, the 2020 election was rigged. 
which there's a lot of problems with Stefanik. Uh, most of her other politics besides defending Trump are terrible. But she's willing to go the extra mile to defend Trump. Tim Scott doesn't want to do that. Tim Scott does not want to be that defense, uh, you know, play that strong of defense for Trump. And Trump realizes that. And he's probably not going to pick him as VP. It's a it's a realistic one, but there's so many other people that he would choose. He's got Sarah Huckabee Sanders. He's got Stefanik. He's got Gnome. Haley is a very unrealistic because Haley is once staying in the primary longer than she should. And that's really aggravating Trump. And she's now running these attack ads on Trump, utilizing liberal media hit uh, sound bites about he attacked my husband, blah, blah, blah. And also the fact that Trump is, Trump world is, you know, was pushing that she's been uh, been cheating on her husband and other things. I, he was not going to pick Haley. Scott is more likely than Haley, but I, I would not put him in the in the top category. I would say Stefanik, Gnome, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I would probably even say J.D. Vance is more of a likely candidate. Uh, Zeldin's probably more likely than Scott. Um, but he is in the, I would say, in the 10 realistic picks. Uh, he would unfortunately be in there, but I don't think he will be picked. So I'm, I'm giving you multiple white pills. I'm going to say he's not going to be VP. So we're going to go back to our other questions. Let's see who to pick. We'll go with Dollar Bill. Uh, he said, history question. What are, were plantation owners in the antebellum South like how they are depicted in fiction? They're shown as swaggering around, dressed like Colonel Sanders, holding grand balls in their homes, taking, talking a Southern accent so thick you could spread it over toast, and relaxing on the porch, watching the field hands pick cotton while enjoying a mint julep. They come across as very colorful individuals, the evils of slavery notwithstanding. Did, black, did, or did people back then dream of owning their own con- plantation and becoming one of the planter elite Kind of like how people today aspire to become famous musicians, movie stars. Definitely in the South, they aspired to do that. That was like the life goal. That was like making it. Um, but with the planter elite, there was like there was differences in how many owns slaves. Like if you the the type of planter elite mindset they have is like the guys who own like fifty to a hundred, and that was like a very small number of Southerners who owned as many slaves as that. Um, they were not quite these old school, you, you know, aristocrats they made themselves out. They really depicted them in fiction like this because the Tidewater, Virginia and uh, coastal uh, South Carolina were really into this image of this as like this old ar- aristocracy that's much more like Europe. And, you know, they're, you know, having these ways, aristocratic ways and noble ways, and they're holding these grand balls and they're not a part of this you know, frivolous capitalist system, but the rest of the South and the real money makers, which were in the deep South of George, well, South Carolina was, but the real like black belt of Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, those guys were more like modern capitalists and running their plantations like capitalists. You know, they're making sure everyone's you know working on time. And there was some similarities to the factory owners in the North and how they were running their plantation. It was quite not uh, the stereotype. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's a little bit... Um, they, of course, had very thick Southern accents, and I think a lot of them enjoyed mint juleps, but I think the uh, kind of planner aristocrat image is not really true. There's a great book on this, uh, The Ruling Race, by Stephen Oaks, I think is, is his last name. I'm going to double-check that. James Oaks, not Stephen Oaks. James Oaks, a ruling race. He's a pretty 
famous historian with us. Uh, that's a very good because it counters a lot of the notions that the South was like this agrarian feudal economy when in fact a lot of these plantation owners were very much capitalists themselves and how they ran things and and what they were desiring and it's not all that they were having balls and dressing up like knights and having jousts which uh some of there were parts of the south that were having this but that wasn't all the south so that's an interesting book to read and learn what the planner elites were like so that is my answer to that question. So we got a pretty good one from Dollar Bill. Now we're going to go to John. John asks, I just started reading, uh, finished reading Strong Boy, The Life and Times of John L. Sullivan. He was the first heavyweight champion in the United States in, in the 1880s. The thing that surprised me the most was the stories of all the people losing their pride, their life savings on gambling. And can carry on reading the question. The referees were gambling, the managers were gambling, and of course, all the fans were gambling. There is even a story of a man in John L. Sullivan's corner in a prize fight in France who lost his life savings on the fight because John L. didn't win fast enough, but continued to act as a stool for John to sit on his back in between rounds in the mud-filled fields. Why was gambling so common and what caused its decline and resurgence? Gambling has always been very common. It's a very masculine activity because it's a way of just showing you're willing to take risks. It's like, hey... I'm willing to bet all my money on the line. How about you? You know, it's a way of like showing off and very masculine behavior. And it's about I'm taking a risk and I win and I own you for taking this risk. I'm right. And so it's a very um, risk, be high risk, high reward behavior that men really like to engage in. So it's always been there. And, you know, there wasn't as much entertainment at the time. So gambling gave them some excitement and added some pizzazz to their life, but a lot of people became addicted to the adrenaline rush of it. And like a lot of other risky behaviors, and you know, like high speed driving or something, you know, people really got into it. And so it was extremely common. I don't know if it ever really had a decline. It's just that we were more restricting it and making it, you know, much, uh, had much stricter criminal penalties about it uh, since the 19th century. But now it's come back because we're now eliminating the restrictions and so a lot of guys now dedicate their masculine passions to betting to sports betting online and it's much more and it's a lot different than before you know i think a lot of gambling that occurred was among friends you know it was over cards it was over you know maybe they were watching the game and they bet you know 20 bucks and throwing in and it was i think a much more of a kind of a community behavior but it could also be a very negative community behavior because all these guys you know they could lose all their money and they don't take care of their family and then they're just compulsive gambling and compulsive gambling is a very devastating habit uh i'm not i'm not actually that big of a fan of gambling i understand why people gamble i understand the masculine appeal of it but you know compulsive gamblers it's like extreme problem i mean that's like the problem with all addictions but like gambling addiction could cost you literally cost you everything in a way that I don't think alcoholism can. You know, alcoholism has a lot of problems, like health problems, but gambling, you know, you're still, you know, you're wasting all your family's money, you know, throwing away all these things that people depend you on, and you just got to keep going with it, and then you become massively in debt. And, you know, at the time when organized crime was involved in this, you know, it could end up with your life loss, so, or at least some serious injuries. So I think, yeah, it's a resurgence is all due to a greater legalization of it and in america we're 
we're sort of a there's this point where we're a little bit of a libertarian paradise you know we're now drug legalization gambling legalization all these vices are open to americans now that they were not uh 30 50 years ago and now all these people just engage in it and we're very much a culture of vice and pleasure where you can just get on your phone order weed watch horrible some pornography and place you know hundred thousand dollar bets there's somebody who's telling me the story that a guy a friend of theirs was working a soup kitchen and some woman who came to the soup kitchen had bet five hundred dollars on the chiefs and other playoff games and she made fourteen hundred dollars from it and she had placed it on her credit card yet she was still at a, at a soup kitchen very much an american moment so uh that's something uh uh I'm very, uh, I actually do think that there needs to be more restrictions on gambling because people just become too addicted to it and they forego other things that they should be focusing on. And it, it really is an opiate that it ensures that they're not focusing on important issues and they, they direct all their passions and aggression towards just gambling. And then they just don't care about the world around them. Um, so that would be my answer to that question, to John's question. Now we're going to get the other John, John Chandler, who asked, what are your thoughts on Bukele? The king size, his king size win in El Salvador and his base victory speech from the balcony of the presidential palace. Should we be worried about the gay trying to undermine him? Are there any lessons we American right-wingers can draw from his story? Granted, El Salvador and the U.S. are very different countries, but it is hard not to see this as a major white bill. I think it's all, I think it's all great what Bukele is doing. Uh, because even just from an American perspective, we want Latin American countries to be like this. They, we want them to be safe and stable so their people are not all trying to flee to our country. And if more of Central America was like El Salvador, we would not be having the immigration problem. And so that's like a very good thing about Bukele. And, and I also do like the idea that, you know, we can easily solve crime through law and order, through arresting criminals. So it definitely undermines the claims of these liberals who are like, this isn't how we solve crime. And then Bukele's like, actually, it is. We just throw them all in jail. And Salvadorans are very, you know, some of the election might have been a little um, rigged by how overwhelming the result is. But Salvadorans are overwhelmingly uh, pop. Uh, in favor of Bukele because they see that the country, you know, had one of the highest murder rates in the world and now it's pretty safe. And so they all appreciate that. And that also makes them un less likely to try to go to America. So it's all very good. But drawing lessons from it, uh, we probably couldn't do that stuff here. Uh, one, like Constitution, we're also the United States of America. And also, if we had those images of our criminals, they would all be of a certain race that we, uh, a lot of Americans worship. And it would create a lot of hysteria and outrage so you really couldn't bring those ideas to america i mean the real thing is like el salvador is a country that had civil war and and political chaos throughout its history you know it's not really had very stable regimes people don't really care about the law and constitution that much and so you could just arrest criminals and put them all in jail and if an america did that i always said if that america did this it would not be directed towards criminals it would be directed towards incels uh, because that would be that would have the only group of that would be the only demographic that you could get a vast majority of Americans to be support putting them in prison camps. So we would see all these poor incels like lined up like those like MS-13 members and stuff and and put in a prison camp. And uh, America would be very happy about that. So 
that if we ever did try to implement that, it would go after political dissonance and incels and people that a lot of America that the liberal media can be whipped up into and the consumers of it can be whipped up into supporting. So Trump can't really do this, but I think on a smaller scale of just simply, we need to be tougher on crime and arrest criminals and put them in jail. I think that's an example we can draw, but in terms of arresting all people accused of crime and then putting them in in, and definitely in prisons, uh, we can't really do that. And if any group we did that against, it would be (laughs) in cells and uh, racists probably. Uh, So I think that is it, except for New England refugee, which we've got, we always like to end on New England refugee. If there was any questions I missed, always make sure to send me a reply and say, you know, Hey, I got this question. Because sometimes, you know, things get lost in the in the pile. Also, you have to make sure that question is in the email you send me because I get a lot and we got it and I make sure that I get all the questions by just seeing who marked questions. So New England refugees with the last question. He says, I was always fascinated by Article 5, the Con- Convention of the States. It seems like if we were able, ever able to get 34 state houses to pass the resolution, 18 have, we could remake the country in our image and ignore big state, dim states like Illinois, California, and New York. Is there any chance you see this happening or is it just a pipe dream? Um, no, I don't really see it happening. I mean, we can't. Uh, I don't think we have 34 states we can ensure have this. And, and if we, we did. They don't really have quite the ideas. I remember when this was an idea 10 years or 11 years ago, actually. This has been an idea for a while. And they're like, what should we eliminate? And they're like, uh, we need to eliminate popular election of senators and return it to the state legislatures. And I was like, actually, that would probably ensure we even have worse senators. We have more people like Mitch McConnell and John Cornyn and these idiots who are pushing for this terrible border deal. Uh, we'd have fewer people who are willing to voice the uh, will of the base like some of the you know tommy tuberville and uh even with josh holly has some cringe behavior and so does ted cruz but they're still better than the establishment guys and jd vance and people like that so that was like the only concrete idea i ever heard from them was just to eliminate uh popular election of centers and return the old way and i don't think that's really there it'd be i, I think you would have there has to be the convention of the states is an idea in search of a purpose. You know, you have to have a purpose of what you're trying to accomplish. Is there a specific amendment that you want to have that can be done with this convention of the states? Or if you re rewrite the constitution, what are, what is your purpose to do this? And I feel like it's just like, we want some vaguely conservative thing to happen and we'll do this by convention of the states. And it's always a problem. It's when you have a, it's a um, it's a solution in search of a problem <laughs> or it's something that it's trying to solve. It's the same with national divorce. It's an idea in search of a motivation or of what we're trying to solve. And it's like, well, we're tired of libs, so we're just going to have our own country. And it's like, uh, what's that country going to be like? Do you see what these red state governors are doing? Would this actually be better? And so I always see this a lot with conservatives that they have these ideas that they have. And then it's like, this is what we need. And then it's like, well, what is it trying to accomplish? What is national divorce trying to accomplish? I think people are a little bit better about articulating that, which I think they fail to understand what a lot of red state America is like and leadership is like and what a red America would be like, which is probably be, uh, you know, 
there'd be some things better, but there'd be a lot of things a lot dumber in a red state of America and wouldn't fully solve our issues. And a convention of the states is this fairly radical idea that hasn't really figured out what its purpose is. So, you know, maybe it could be a good idea, but I think it needs a more concrete purpose. But I think it'd be tough to get 34 states together for something for a purpose that we really agree with. So that is my take on that. And that is it for Highly Respected Today. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the episode. We're going to have a great IQ supplement and a great article later this week. So be on the lookout for that. So until next time, stay respected.